0: Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. There are only two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Whether it's the well-known former college football coach, Lou Holtz, One of our founding fathers of this country, Benjamin Franklin, our Hollywood movie star actor Tom Hanks in the hit 90s movie Forrest Gump, everyone who has lived long enough will soon make comments like these on how they perceive life, how they process life, what they've learned about life, what happens to them in life, and how they've responded to it. So, friends, how's life going for you today? This is my kind of Uncle Blake conversation with you in the living room. How you doing? As they might say up in Boston. How y'all doing? They might say down here in Arkansas. But really, how's life going for you? Is it going largely as you have planned? Or does your life constantly feel like a deck of cards that gets reshuffled at the most unpredictable of times? If life truly is 10% what happens to you and 90% of how you respond to it, how are you doing with that 90% lately? Throughout our lives, we will either learn from our mistakes or we will learn from others' mistakes. But friends, the longer you live life, we will continue to learn and relearn many lessons. Life lessons can be both painful and pleasurable, right? But life lessons can be also priceless. They can be priceless more than anything else that we own. Now, for certain, you can learn things in a classroom. You can learn things from reading a book. You can learn things from listening to other people's counsel and advice about those who have lived longer than you have. But sooner or later, we will all learn lessons about life, about ourselves, about others, and about God himself, only by walking through life as it comes to us, day by day. But as Christians, we know that life is not an end in and of itself. Similar to the way we'll exchange gifts and bless others with presents this Christmas, friends, life is more like that. It's a gift. It's a a present. It's something given to us from our creator and the sustainer of the universe. From a Christian worldview, we need to make sure that we all in this room have that one conviction nailed down securely in our minds today. And the conviction is this. Life is not God. Life is a precious gift bestowed to us from God. Life is not God. Life is a precious gift bestowed to us from God. Life is a gift from our personal, all-knowing, covenant-keeping God who is full of steadfast love, our God who is all-powerful, our God who is all-sovereign. This is the one true God. This is God Almighty. I mean, think about it. Just think about your life and my life on how very little say we had with our own existence. Put on your thinking caps again. None of us got to determine the year or century we were born into. None of us got to determine the parents we were given. None of us got to determine the country we would be born into. None of us got to determine the talents we were given, the wealth or lack thereof, the family upbringing, our DNA, our height, our health. None of it. We had no say in any of it. It was something we were born with and given to by God. Friends, we don't even know the exact amount of time we'll live on this earth. Friends, you know why that is? Because life is a gift from God. Job understood that, right? He was a man who feared God and learned that valuable life lesson. Job was a God-fearing man, blessed immeasurably by God, but Job went through a fierce season of trial and satanic accusation in his life. He lost his livelihood through catastrophic weather and thieves. He lost 10 children in death prematurely eventually he even losing his own health and reputation in his own community all because of the immense suffering he would face and in Job's initial response to the cards he was dealt with in his life notice carefully how Job understood the preciousness of life and all its blessings as a gift from God Job 1 verse 21 Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Friends, at the end of the day, every person who walks on this planet has one or two worldviews of how they view life. You will either view life through the lens of Scripture, which is God's revelation, God's wisdom that never changes and is always trustworthy, or we will view life through a hodgepodge of eclectic beliefs, man-made opinions, worldviews, ideologies, and feelings that just change with the winds of whatever season we're living in. But sooner or later, when the hard times come, And they will come. When suffering comes knocking on the door of your life and my life, our theology, what we believe about God, that's when it gets put to the test. It's not reading a systematic theology book. It's not quoting reformers. It's not being cool with the Puritans. It's not saying your pastors know some things about theology. No, what you believe about this God will be put to the test when you get put through some fiery trials of suffering? Dear friends, do your circumstances determine what you believe about God? Or does your knowledge of God from the scriptures shape how you respond to your circumstances? Let me put it more frankly. When times are bad in your life, Is God still good in your eyes? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 127. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, Ruth is the eighth book in our English Bibles, at least in that order, found just after the book of Judges and right before 1 Samuel. And if you need to use the table of contents, because Ruth gets kind of stuck in the Bible, it's been a little while since you've read there, totally fine, no one's going to judge you, I still do it, even in my own quiet time from time to time. This morning, we begin the first of four sermons through the book of Ruth during the month of December, and here we are in Advent season, as Christians around the world will take time to commemorate and celebrate what occurred over 2,000 years ago with the arrival and birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, I hope, I don't know if you've been through a series in the book of Ruth, whether in a Sunday morning gathering at church or in your quiet time, but I hope as we read this book over the next month that we will find how deeply personal and really how sympathetic we can become with what God's word reveals about those who suffer. And Friends, I hope actually it's a book that helps us prepare well when we face suffering in our life. And, And friends, even more than that, The greatest challenge the book of Ruth is going to bring to us, I think, is this. Will we trust the steadfast love of the Lord even when it seems like God is against us when he's really for us? Please follow with me. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These two Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth, they lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter in law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is God's word. Love it. The overarching question that the book of Ruth challenges us with, right here at the start in chapter one, is this Is God at work even in the worst of times? Is God at work? even in the worst of times. Is God at work for his glory, for our good and our ultimate joy in him, even when God authorizes a painful hand of providence in our lives? That's why I like the Bible. It's raw, it gets up in your grill and it talks about real problems, real suffering and real complex questions like God's sovereignty and immense suffering. The book of Ruth is very short, with over eighty, just over 80 verses. Half of the book is basically a dialogue between key characters in the book. And friends, the book of Ruth is packed, like a suitcase packed to the brim of wonderful life lessons for the people of God to learn in every generation, including our own generation today. It's a real historical narrative pinned down in redemptive history, and it's a story that really I think we can resonate with in real time. It's a story that has a beautiful ending, but a really hard, perplexing, and painful beginning. But as the story unfolds, chapter after chapter, verse by verse, for us, week by week, God's beautiful hand is working on the one side and his mysterious providence with hard things on the other. It is a beautiful tapestry that looks unclear to us but looks crystal clear to him. If you're taking notes, my outline is in the form of three scenes they give a summary of each section of chapter one. Scene number one, an extended season of hard times and sad goodbyes. An extended season of hard times and sad goodbyes. That's verses one to five. Scene number two, an emotional conversation that leads to a surprising outcome. An emotional conversation that leads to a surprising outcome. That's verses 6 to 18. And then scene number three, an eventful return home on the verge of new and blessed beginnings. An eventful return home on the verge of new and blessed beginnings. That's verse 19 to 22. Let's look at that first scene together. An extended season of hard times and sad goodbyes. Like someone who might set the table for dinner, the narrator of this story, whom we're not exactly sure who it is, sets the table for the setting of this book. In verse 1, we're told that the story takes place in the days when the judges ruled. So if you have your worship guide, turn to page 9. Turn to page 9. And Donna, don't you like the thickness on this worship guide this morning? All those sermon notes. You don't have to look to Jansen and go, I'm running out of space. We did that just for you. Nine bucks of paper. (laughs) Brad, plug your ears on that one. On page nine, as you'll see there, You'll see a chart that maps out a general timeline of how to locate the books of the Old Testament and redemptive history. You'll notice that to the left, Ruth, at least on this chart, falls in the middle of the timeline when the book of Judges took place. Now, just to be clear, some commentators and scholars pushed the book of Ruth sometime a little later in the story, maybe sometime around when David was anointed king in Israel, so maybe sometime in 1 Samuel. You might say, well, why is that? Why is there some differences of opinion. Well, look in the book of Ruth on chapter 4 real quick. Look at Ruth 4. We'll get there on Christmas morning. It's going to be a sweet text for Christmas morning. Look at Ruth 4 verse 17. Just glance down briefly. Ruth 4.17. I love the sound of Bible pages turning. Ruth 4.17 and Ruth 4.22. You'll notice the name David shows up. All that basically means is whoever the narrator is, whoever the author is, has knowledge of David and him being anointed king at some point in history. But regardless of the exact chronological time, the author here wants us to know what the political and military climate was like at this point in Israel's history. This time period he mentions when the judges ruled may also help us see how people are doing spiritually in the nation of Israel. Judges were military leaders not like what we would see today in like circuit court judges, but they were uh, more like military commanders in some ways, that God would raise up in mercy to deliver his people when they had been taken captive by enemies. Those enemies had taken them captive because God gave them over to their enemies when they rebelled against him. Now this, of course, is before there were kings. So there was David and Solomon and so forth, but they don't show up yet until 1 and 2 Samuel. For the most part, the book of Judges is a grim book of history to read in the Bible. It is a roller coaster of ups and downs, with most of it being spent in the valley of spiritual corruption and moral collapse. So if you want to get just a taste, if you're going to be reading the book of Judges sometime in 2023, let me give you a taste of how this book ends that really summarizes how messed up The people of God were in this era. Look in the last verse of Judges 21. Just flip back one page. Judges 21, verse 25. This is the summary of the whole book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Friends, that's just another way of saying when when people don't have a strong leader to lead them who fears God, People will live and talk as if God doesn't exist. It's mayhem. It's madness. It's often the reason for the moral collapse we see in our culture all around us today. It's often the very reason so much of the spiritual famine that is present in so many pulpits today and how much unrepentant sin goes unaccounted for and unchecked in churches. Beloved, apart from God showing mercy to us in giving us good leaders to lead us. In a matter of time, it will be utter chaos. People will do what plunges them into ruin and destruction. They will do what is right in their own eyes rather than what's right in God's eyes, which is the primary characteristic of a godless fool or a godless nation. It was true in Israel's day, And it's still true in our day as well. You'll also notice that the author mentions another aspect of this time in Israel's history. He speaks now of the weather climate, which affected the economic climate of Israel as well. Notice there in verse 1, he says there was a famine in the land, and that the famine in the land was Bethlehem and Judah. Now, if you've grown up in church, or been familiar with Bible stories, particularly around the Advent, Bethlehem is a pretty well-known town, but it's actually nothing all that impressive, really, in the Bible. It's a pretty small town. Uh, not very many people lived there, five miles south of Jerusalem. and Bethlehem eventually would be the town that King David would be born into, and even more than that, King Jesus would be born into. Famines were not totally uncommon in the ancient world. You can read your Old Testament and see several examples. But any true Israelite who was grounded in the scriptures knew that Yahweh was the creator and sovereign God even over the weather. Just a few scriptures for us to be freshly reminded of this morning about how God is sovereign over the weather and not mother nature. Psalm 147 verse 8, he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth like he did here in Barling and Fort Smith. He makes grass grow on the hills. Psalm 147, 16 to 18, he gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes, excuse me. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Or even consider Psalm 105, which brings to mind that our God is not simply the weatherman who just describes what the weather might be like. He is the weather maker, even over things like famines. Have you ever thought about Psalm 105, verse 16, which is a psalm that recounts the time there was a famine in Egypt when Joseph was reigning? Notice what the psalmist says, Psalm 105, verse 16. When he, the Lord, summoned a famine in the land and broke all supply of bread. Friends, whether it's snow or ice, wind or rain, deserts or droughts, feast or famine, the scriptures are abundantly clear. It's not Mother Nature. It's not random chance. It is God Almighty who reigns and rules over even things like the weather. But within this type of climate, a climate of political unrest, a climate of spiritual and moral collapse, there was a family of four living in Bethlehem. In verses 1 and 2, the story is introduced to us to this family of four. There's a husband and a father named Elimelech. His name means my God is king. He was married to a woman named Naomi. Her name means my delight or sweetness. Or pleasant. Together they had two sons. Malon, whose name is kind of unfortunate. His name means sick or weakness. Uh, what a bad hand to get in life. And then Killion, whose name means failing or wasting. I mean, come on, mom. Come on. And the book of Ruth introduces us to them as a family of four Jews living in the town of Bethlehem, which interestingly. The town of Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. That's ironic. The house of bread, at least for a season, was a place where bread was scarce. Remember, there was a famine in the land. That's how the book opens up. Which meant that food like bread and work, like harvesting the grain in the fields, was on a radical decline. Like we might even say here in the U.S., there was a struggling job market, a struggling housing market. There were layoffs going all over the place with businesses. People were closing their doors. They were getting rid of employees. They were, quote, downsizing because the economy was declining. Start market, no good. Times were lean, and times were hard. So what did Elimelech do? How did he lead his family? Did he go north in Israel, you know, find another community that might not be suffering from the famine? Did he go south in Israel to find bread and work? Did he stay in the promised land where God's presence and provision had led his people to many years previously? It says there in verses 1 and 2, they left Bethlehem and traveled east beyond the Dead Sea, out of their homeland, over to the neighboring land of Moab. The total distance would have been around probably 70 to 100 miles, and it would have taken them in that day probably about a week to get there. But why Moab? I mean, did he roll some dice? pick a name out of the hat? Was Moab a good place for Jews to live? Was it on the top 20 places for people to retire to? Was it a wise move? What is a good move as a next step? Was Moab a better place for the people of God to live than the very land God had promised and preserved? for his people. If you read the book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Judges, anytime you read about Moab or the Moabites, you will find out that they were a longtime enemy of God's people. And what's so interesting here, we're not sure if there's war going on between Israel and Moab. There seems to be some kind of peace, or Elimelech's crazy, walking his family into a war land, but we're not sure. Regardless, though, he's leading his family to a land where his God isn't loved and his God is not worshipped. A Limelech for reasons we hope were good motives, like any good dad would do in this room. He's leading his family because there's work, there's bread, there's something to provide for his family. We can hope that was his heart, that was his motives. But friends, he's leading them to a land with people who don't fear God. He's leading them to a land of people who have been fiercely opposed to God. We might say that this husband and father had led his family to a place where there was no good church anywhere to be found. It was a famine of bread back home in Judah, and there was a famine of spiritual life and truth in Moab. They were over in this foreign land on their own, sojourning to a place they had never lived before and probably had never even visited before. And you would think this was just going to be a short little, you know, this is just temporary. You know, six-month lease, 12-month lease, not that long. It says in verse 4 that they settled down. Got comfortable. And they stayed there much longer than a few months. They stayed there for 10 years, a whole decade of life. Friends, that's a long time to be away from home. That's a long time to be away from familiar roads and familiar restaurants and familiar neighborhoods. That's a long time to be away from friends, extended family, and a community of believers to hold you accountable and keep you focused on the Lord. Friends, we don't know all the reasons why Elimelech led his family to Moab we could assume he had good motives, at least in part, he wanted to provide for his family. But on the other hand, he also could have led his family for not so good reasons. Elimelech could have been imitating what was so common amongst the Jews in Israel. Maybe Elimelech was simply doing what was right in his own eyes rather than trusting his God to provide somewhere closer or near Bethlehem. Friends, we're not that different from Elimelech, are we? We can actually make decisions with mixed motives. Good motives that outwardly look respectable. But we can also make decisions that are mixed. We could be doing something that on the outside looks noble, but on the inside is suspicious. So Elimelech, why did he move his family to Moab? Was he doing that to obey the will of God? Or was he moving his family to Moab because he was running from God? At the end of the day, only Elimelech and God know. Friends, just a friendly caution and reminder to each one of us, when you're making big life decisions like Elimelech did for his family, like thinking to move away to another town, city, or state, friends, don't make that decision in isolation from godly counsel. That might be super new for you to hear from a pastor in a pulpit. Friends, when you join this church, we don't micromanage your life, but we are here to help shepherd you, And think through making wise decisions so that you don't shipwreck your faith and shipwreck your family in the process. Friends, we can all, maybe like Elimelech was, times were hard. We can grow discontent where we live. We can grow discontent in our jobs. We can grow discontent with our families. And we can just think, well, moving to a new place will make it better. I can just put the past behind me. Friends, that's a fool's error. If you're discontent here, you're going to take that discontent somewhere else. We can change our geographical location, but that doesn't change our hearts. Friends, you might even be here this morning, and there's a spiritual dry season you've been in for quite some time. Or maybe you've been living in sin, and it's catching up with you. Or maybe you're tempted to quit on this church, Quit on friendships because it's hard. Making friends hasn't been as easy as you thought they were. Friends, if that's where you're at, don't quit. Don't cut people off. Don't give up. Learn to love even when it's hard. And learn to persevere because God's best might just be around the corner. You don't want to leave a good thing simply because it's hard. Friends, when times get hard in your life, do you tend to isolate yourself from others? Do you tend to cut people off? Do you tend to avoid them? Or do you tend to gravitate to people to ask for help, to ask for a helping hand or encouragement? And I want to encourage you even right now, if you tend to gravitate away from people, that's a dangerous place to be spiritually. Proverbs 18:1 says, he who isolates himself cast off all sound judgment. Friends, that's why the local church is here. We're to be a family of like-minded believers who care about everything going on in one another's lives. And friends, if you do decide to move away, because God may very well do that, and leave for good reasons, Maybe schools are better elsewhere. Maybe you can provide better for your family. Friends, whatever you decide to do, whether that's next year or 10 years from now, make sure where you move to has a good church you can join. Make sure where you move to has a good church you can join. Do your homework now. Don't let the church be the last thing you look for if you relocate. That is a fool's error. All the money in the world, the best swanky house and the coolest setup for your kids is going to wear off you need a gospel preaching biblical church led by godly elders who care for your soul friends it's that important it's that important and i would even sometimes counsel some people in some situations not to move because the place they're thinking about is a dumpster fire it is a spiritual famine of a community and i would say it is god's will for you to stay put right yeah based off of the word of god rant over friends proverbs 15:22 is a good word for us to remember the way of a fool is right in his own eyes but a wise man listens to advice but what was it like when they moved all right they did it they put the house for sale they did their research at least partly if they had Google back then? Did their time in Moab deliver on what they had hoped? Did the land of Moab fulfill what was probably missing in their hearts? Verses four and five paints a very grim picture. Elimelech, he dies. You know what's really ominous about this text? We're not told the cause of his death. We're not told the exact events that surrounded his death. It just says he died. The boys, Malon and Kilion, find some Moabite girls to marry. There's Orpah and then there's Ruth and they begin to live life in Moab and make it home. So Naomi loses her husband, but then the hopefulness of grandchildren... The hopefulness of seeing their sons, her sons, grow up with these Moabite wives are bringing her hope. Maybe that will fill that void. But then the narrator wastes no time mentioning in verse five look with me at verse five. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Friend, they had left Bethlehem, the house of bread, their hometown, in hopes to find satisfaction and a future and a life in Moab. And in a matter of 10 years, what did they face? Death, the end of life. The setting of the book of Ruth begins with a famine and it be, then it continues on in a dogpile of tragedies. Think for a minute if you were in Naomi's shoes. She's already said goodbye to her hometown with any extended family and friends and familiarity she had. She left her home and traveled to this foreign land. She's now widowed. Her husband is dead, and now her only two sons are dead. There's no grandchildren to be accounted for. There's no male headship to provide for her, lead her, care for her, or protect her. Friends, back in this day, for a woman to be widowed with no males caring for her, they would be practically viewed as homeless who you and I sometimes are tempted to walk by and not even speak to in the streets on the north side of town. Homeless. A full home. And within a matter of years, an empty one. Times were hard. And times were bad. So what did Naomi and these two young ladies do? This leads to scene number two, an emotional conversation that leads to a surprising outcome. Look at me at verses six and seven. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. We see there in verse six that the Lord who is sovereign over famines, verse one, is also sovereign over feasts. He is sovereign over adversity and he is sovereign over prosperity. The Lord, the author says, had visited his people and given them food. Naomi gets word that God has blessed her homeland and she now believes that it's the right thing to do to return back to Bethlehem. Orpah and Ruth, they decide to go with her. And all appears like they're moving in a unified fashion. Yet, as they travel on the road, an intense, emotional, and at least at first, painful disagreement ensues. You ever have one of those car rides? Everything's going fine. Everyone can't make up their mind what they want to eat for lunch. Then nobody's talking to each other? Well, they didn't have a car, but on that path to Bethlehem, it got intense, it got emotional, and there was some disagreement about how life's supposed to look now. Here's what we see Naomi has a plan for her life, and like a good helicopter mom or mother in law, has a plan for Orpah and Ruth's life too. But do all those plans match what God's plan is for their lives? Let's find out. Naomi pleads with the women to leave her side, go back home, go start back over with your lives. Friends, that's what Naomi's plan is. Just go. Go on back. Start over. Go find some husbands. You're young, you're fun, you're available. Just just go. Naomi basically says, and while you go, may God bless you. May God repay you for caring for me in my weakest moments. May God's best be on your life. But Orpah and Ruth, uh-uh. They're doing that kind of head-shaking thing. Uh-uh. They ain't having it. They don't like Naomi's plan. They don't want to leave Naomi. They love her. They care about her. They're deeply concerned for her. In many ways, they feel like they need her, and Naomi needs them. But then Naomi opens up her mouth. And, friends, when people are hurting, listen the longer they talk. Usually, the first few minutes, maybe even the first few days through immense suffering, they say things that probably are not really all that true. But then, when you can get them in a safe place, they really will say what's going on in their hearts. That's what's about to happen. Look at verses 11 to 13. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, but the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi, in essence, says this, I got nothing for you, girls. I can't bear sons that you can marry. I'm not even marriage material myself. Have you seen me lately? I'm old, I'm gray, I'm bitter, I'm wrinkled. Trust me, I am undesirable. But even more than that, you don't want to be around me the Lord's against me. I'm just like a walking accident waiting to happen. I'm like walking on a tightrope just waiting for lightning to strike me once again. You don't want to be associated with anyone like that. I've got no future. I've got no family. Only God's frowning providence is thundering and lightning on me. Trust me. Leave, girls, while you still can. Friends, this is the picture of someone who may show up in your life just next year. She is socially, emotionally, maybe even psychologically and definitely spiritually in a very bad place. Naomi is distressed. She might even be what we would consider morbidly depressed so much that she views as the circumstances of her life. She interprets what's going on in her life as God is out to punish her. God is out to judge her, to crush her. She looks at heaven, and she doesn't deny God's existence. She doesn't even deny that God is love and he is kind. Remember, he told Ruth and Orpah, may God bless you. May God show his kindness to you. She knows those things about God. She just doesn't believe God loves her. I have spent untold amounts of hours trying to untie knots in people's lives that say I know the Bible says God is love, but I feel like he loves everyone else except me. Friends, you can have good theology in your head, but suffering will reveal what's really in your heart. Friends, never forget that. Study the word of God. But the real test is when your knowledge of God gets put to the test, when everything around you feels like he's against you. So what do the girls do? Do they go along with their mother-in-law's plan? You know, she kind of gives them the eye. Do they listen to her wishes? Do they listen to her pain and sorrow and sympathize and go, yeah, okay, we'll do it. Well, Orba changes her mind. Orba initially says she's going to remain with Naomi and Ruth, but then she changes her mind, and now Naomi faces a sad goodbye again. A daughter-in-law she loved would now say goodbye to her, and friends, we're never told that they see one another ever again. Both in verse 9 and verse 14, it says they lifted up their voices and wept. shoulders soaked with tears. But Ruth, she refuses to heed Naomi's counsel. Ruth never backs down from that initial decision to stay with Naomi. Once Orpah's out of the picture and leaves and goes back to Moab and to her false gods, friends, Ruth does the total opposite. Without flinching, Ruth resolves to stick closer to a woman she loves, to a woman who appears to be in desperate need of hope and in help. Here we see the first of many examples in the book of Ruth of a God-fearing woman. Ruth is unyielding in her loyalty. She's unyielding and relentless in her resolve. She is a true friend. That's actually what her name means. The root word for Ruth is friendship to verse 14 we even see that friendship embodied then they lifted other voices and wept again and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law but Ruth clung to her you see Naomi had lost everything and everyone so she thought she thought she would grow old be a cat lady and be all alone She thought God was out to get her and that no one would give her the time or energy to even be associated with her because of her suffering, because she believed that God was punishing her, judging her, and against her. And yet, what does God do like he does in our life? He begins proving her wrong. He begins proving her wrong by providing a priceless friend and comforter in Ruth. Earlier in the call to worship, Jeff read from Proverbs 19.21, which says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Friends, we may have plans for ourselves that seem right at the time that God will one day redirect according to his plans. We may have plans for other people in our lives, like our children, like our grandchildren, oh, our daughters-in-laws and our son-in-laws, or people we're discipling. We might think we have a good plan for their life. And friends, God may have a very different plan for their lives that's about to unfold. Brothers and sisters, remember this. We should write our plans in pencil and give God the eraser. We should write our plans in pencil and give God the eraser. We should give God the erasure because his plans are better anyway, even if they don't make sense to us at first. Remember, he is God Almighty. He is El Shaddai. He is the covenant-keeping God of Israel. He is Yahweh, and we are not. Friends, we should pray for wisdom to help others discern God's will in their life. But friends, we can't play God in anyone's life. We tell people what God's word says. We show them how to follow the Lord Jesus with their lives. But we trust that God is perfectly able to lead his sheep where he wants them to go. So mamas, when they are little kids in here are going to grow up to be 18 and 19-year-olds, and they're going to have some different views about college or the military or what to do with their adult years. Pray for them now, give them good counsel, raise them up well, but they're ultimately the Lord's don't micromanage their life. God has a plan for their life, and it's often very different than what mommy and daddy has for their kids' lives. It's a good pill to swallow now. Naomi, as a mother-in-law, had to understand she was crossing some boundaries that not even God would allow her to cross. Amazingly, when God's plans come to fruition, things that we would never predict come to pass. Ruth is not just a friend to Naomi. But Ruth gets converted. Look with me in Ruth 1, 15 to 18. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people in your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, I like how it's just so subtle, she said no more. In other words, she held her peace. Growing up in Moab, she would have been influenced and in worshiped the false god of Chemosh, as several Old Testament passages allude to, and here this Moabite woman who knew a lick of nothing when it came to the Torah or Yahweh at Sinai, here she is forsaking her false gods to follow the true God, while vast portions of Israel who were doing what's right in their own eyes were rebelling against their God. The book of Ruth is provocative. God doesn't need any one of us to get his work done. He can take someone from a different culture, different context, different gender than anything that we would perceive to fulfill his plans. Ruth is a young lady who's been widowed from Moab, and God had plans through death, through suffering, to save her. Oh, friends, God may bring suffering in your life to convert someone else. God may bring suffering in someone else's life you deeply love and you don't want it to happen to convert someone else that you've been praying for. Friends, God can use 10,000 10,000, 10,000, on top of 10,000 things in our little lives to accomplish glorious things. When it feels like all this loss, like you tried to share the gospel and you like fumbled and stumbled, slobbered and cried, forgot verses, quoted verses off, God can even use a pathetic evangelistic attempt by us to save someone. He can use little churches. He can use... Okay, preachers, he can use anyone at any time, including our suffering, to lead someone else to the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, our God is big, and we ought to pray like it. We ought to pray like we're prisoners for Christ. Paul did, and the gospel went on even while he was chained. Let's pray for that. When you're suffering, and when you're having a hard time and a hard week at work or a hard week with your family, God, use this suffering for someone to see Christ in me and for them to see a power that I couldn't do for myself. You know what's ironic? Naomi wasn't even all that good of a witness for God, was she? A bitter person is not exactly one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the bitter, for they shall win many to Christ. I think that one missed that one in the Sermon on the Mount. So how on earth does Ruth get converted? Her mother-in-law is a lousy evangelist. Her husband's dead. Her father-in-law's dead. She didn't grow up in the synagogue or temple. God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks, can he? Maybe they were having some good old Torah, Deuteronomy 6 time in Moab, having a family devo. Maybe she remembers something she learned about Yahweh and his deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. I don't know. But in heaven it'll all become plain. Friends, God was at work, wasn't he? Hard times came, perplexing times, emotional conversations, and yet God was changing hearts the whole time. But God not only changes hearts, he also can change, I mean, on a dime, circumstances that go from darkness to light. Which leads to our last point, scene number three, An eventful return home on the verge of new and blessed beginnings. This last section ends with a town that is caught off guard when they arrive. It says in verse 19, the whole town was stirred because of them. Why were they stirred? Maybe they were surprised to see Ruth. They had never met her, they went away for 10 years. Or maybe they looked at Naomi and said, What happened to you, sister? I need to give you some gifts of makeup for Christmas. You're aged, you're weathered, you're withered, and you're bitter. Look at verses 20 and 21. This was her homecoming after being gone for a decade. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant, remember? Ironic. Call me Mara. The word literally means bitter or bitterness. For the Almighty, El Shaddai, has dealt bitterly, very bitterly with me. I went away full. That means I left town 10 years ago with a lot of blessings. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought this calamity upon me? Friends, do you resonate with Naomi in any way? Have you had circumstances in your life literally just get turned on their head? And the first thing that enters your mind, what did I do? Did I offend God? Is he out against me? Am I even a Christian? And you doubt your salvation over and over and over and over, all because you're going through a hard time. Friends, it's the testing of our faith through trials that proves we are one of his. Listen, when you're in times of suffering, it's okay to acknowledge it's hard. It's okay to complain and offer those complaints to the Lord. It's okay to lament. It's okay to offer your cries and your fears and your anxieties to the Lord. See, that's the difference. That's godly lament. Sinful lament is when you look inwardly. Woe is me. God's done with me. He's against me. He has nothing good for me. Just change my name to a bitter, old, undesirable woman. She feels rejected. She feels like she's a walking target for God's heat-seeking missile of wrath. She feels like a woman whose picture would be in the dictionary next to the word God-forsakenness. You see, Naomi's interesting, isn't she? She's not an atheist. She's not even agnostic. She's got better theology than half the Baptist churches I know. She believes in the sovereignty of God. She even believes that God's kind and loving. She's already even said, God, may you bless my daughter's-in-law. She knows who's over the famine. She knows who's visited his people in the fields. She's just having a really hard time believing God loves her. But then in verse 22, we see a glimmer of hope. Look with me in verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The beginning of barley harvest would have been somewhere between mid to late April as the rainy season came to a close. And here they are, converted Ruth, the former Moabite, now a God-fearer, with her disillusioned and jaded mother-in-law, Naomi. And they're entering back into a unique time of the year, at the beginning of barley harvest. Friends, do you know what the narrator is doing here in chapter 1? He starts off the story with a grim, depressing, maybe even hopeless setting. And in verse 22... We're now talking about a harvest, which is the opposite of a famine. You see, Naomi had written off her life, her past, present, and future, and interpreted it as that God would never show her hope and light or favor or blessing again. Friends, is that where you're at today? Do you feel like God's against you? Do you feel like there's no hope for the future? All is lost. Do you feel like your circumstances are so grim and dark that God's actually turned his back on you? You say things like this, life will never get better. All is lost. Suffering is pointless. No use of opening up my heart again to anyone. No use of trying to minister to anyone ever again. No use of trying to make friends again. No use of making that call again. I've been hurt. I've been betrayed. I've been abused. I've been cheated on. I've been lied to. I've been led astray. Where would you fill that blank? I've been what? And top it all off, maybe you're tempted to resign to the same mentality of Naomi. God is love, but he doesn't love me. God can bless, but that bank account's empty for me. Friends, what life lessons can we glean just from Ruth chapter 1 this morning? I've got four. Life lesson number one, the greatest news in the world came about through the worst tragedy the world has ever seen. The greatest news in the world came about through the worst tragedy the world has ever seen. Friends, the only innocent person to ever live was crucified, Jesus Christ. Jesus experienced the worst suffering the world would ever see, greater than a famine, greater than the death of a loved one. Friends, he was crucified as a criminal by lawless and evil men. He died under the wrath of God, being punished for the sins of his people, not for sins that he committed. Friends, we are all sinners. Any suffering we face in this life pales in comparison to the suffering we deserve. When people say, I'm going through hell right now, you have my biblical permission to say, no, you're not. Because when you read your New Testament, hell is a whole lot worse than whatever you may go through in this life. Because if you're alive in this life, As Jonathan Edwards says, the Lord dangles you over the pit of hell like a spider, saying, flee the wrath of God before I drop you in it. Oh, friends, we may go through all sorts of things that we didn't deserve, others have done against us, or we may have to bear the consequences of our own actions. But friends, there's only one person who's ever been perfect. There's only one person who's ever been truly innocent the most innocent one, suffered the most. Jesus Christ, he is the hope we have because he died for us in our place. He suffered for us in our place. He defeated death in our place. Friends, that's why Jesus Not a healthy family, not having many kids, not living in your best life now with your best house, or all your plans coming true. That's not our hope as Christians. We can be happy in those blessings, but we cannot put our hope in those blessings because one day they will be what? They will be taken away. The Lord gives and he what? Takes away. Our hope has got to be in something that's unshakable. As we've heard earlier from Romans 8, friends, we've heard that God's love we can never be separated from if our faith is in Christ. Not financial or economic decline, not the death of loved ones, not the sinful choices of others, not Satan, not evil men, not people who've hurt you, lied to you, or have done things like ghosting on you. Not even your own doubts, complaints, tears, or blindness to God's goodness can separate you and I from his love. Nothing as Jackson read, nothing. Take Romans 8 to the bank. Romans 8:35, Romans 8:38 and 39. Nothing in all creation. Things now, things to come, things that are satanic and spiritual, and things like death. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, if you're not a Christian here today, what are you putting your hope in? Parents? It is your responsibility, it is my responsibility as a dad, as a mom, in age-appropriate ways to talk to your kids about death. I have no problem telling my oldest or any of my children, Daddy won't always be here. Daddy won't always be here. But the Savior Daddy prays to and tells you to believe in, He will. We should be talking like that in age-appropriate ways, about death, about suffering, and the hope we have in the gospel. When we hear someone's died, when an obituary is sitting there on your table, redeem it. Use it. We're singing Christ is our hope in life and death. Well, friends, do we believe it? Well, let's don't be ashamed to talk about hard things because our hope is not here. Our hope is with Christ. Life lesson number two. To those who are suffering, do not isolate yourself from the Christian community who's trying to love you. Do not isolate yourself from the Christian community who's trying to love you. Friends, one of the biggest things that we have to learn as Christians is that we need to humble ourselves and ask for help. Bob Kellerman says, shared sorrow is endurable sorrow. One of the ways you can do that is tell people specifically a way to pray for you. Be flexible with who God may put in your life. Naomi, probably didn't think Ruth would be that one. God may provide someone in your life that you didn't see coming. And listen, one of the things that we do here at CCBC is we try to sing songs of truth. We sing songs about sorrow, we sing songs about suffering, and we sing songs about the hope we have in God in the midst of it. It's because we're going to need a little more than just some 7-Eleven, happy, clappy, knee-slapping music When you get that doctor's report that you don't like, when you find out your parents are separating, when you find out your business is crashing, you're gonna need a whole lot more than frivolous songs repeated over and over again. You're gonna need truth. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, as William Cooper said, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Life lesson number three, for those who are trying to help, friends, the ministry of presence is more valuable than trying to fix someone's suffering. The ministry of presence is more valuable than trying to fix someone's suffering. Uh, My first church, there was a woman, dead serious. This is not to make the sermon, like, fit, it's just real. There was a woman in our church who lost her husband and her son within two years. She truly was a Naomi kind of situation. I had no idea as a young 27-year-old had to shepherd a woman who I've only preached at that point, maybe 50 sermons. So the only thing I knew to do was I went right into her house. I looked at the pictures on the wall of her deceased husband and her deceased son. I said, I want to sit here all afternoon and hear about him. Tell me what they were like. Tell me what they enjoyed. Tell me, Debbie. Tell me, Debbie. I'm your pastor. I love you. She was really kind of didn't know what to do at first because she never had a pastor actually care enough to know. And then she told me Brock, her son, used to play golf. Guys, Charlie, tell him I'm not a good golfer. But you know what? (laughs) That's why I like this. Speak the truth and love, brother. But you know what? I may not be able to swing a golf club like her son Brock could, but boy, I could go out to that driving range. And we swung those golf clubs, me and Debbie, talking about our son and our father. It's our father, or our husband. Friends, you don't need to be a skilled MDiv, doctor, have all the answers in the world. Just show up. Just enter into people's suffering and be available. Life's lesson number four, and we'll close. God's ways are often mysterious to us, but they are crystal clear for God. God's ways are mysterious to us, but they are crystal clear to God. Sinclair Ferguson says, God moves in mysterious ways. We don't have access to his blueprints. Missionary Hudson Taylor was only married for 12 years. It's not because his wife divorced him. It's because God took his wife. He said this, so make up your mind that God is an infinite sovereign. And he has the right to do as he pleases with his own. He may not explain to you a thousand things which may puzzle your reason in his dealings with you. Brothers and sisters, there's going to be suffering in this world and in our life that we can't explain. God is his own interpreter. And in eternity, he will make it plain. What is our confidence in life and death? Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait his day. And patiently I wait his day. For Naomi and Ruth, they were on the brink of a barley harvest, a new chapter, a glimmer of hope, a new beginning. Brothers and sisters, Be careful of telling God what you think he's doing in your life. God is his own interpreter. His ways are mysterious, but they are crystal clear and good from his perspective. Be thankful to God in prosperity. Be patient in adversity. He will never deceive you, and he will never, ever forsake you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you at the end of Ruth 1, a very dark and hard passage to read, but yet it is inspired of you, and it has comforted and encouraged your people throughout the ages. Lord, we pray that today that we would be reminded that in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he accomplished at the cross is the proof that you love us, and you will never leave nor mislead your children. Lord, we pray for anyone here today, adult or child who doesn't know you. Lord, help them think about their own mortality and the hope we have beyond this life. Lord, we pray that the words that we'll sing now in this final hymn, that we would sing them and we would believe them. In Jesus' name, amen.